Now, uh, you know, sometimes football is called a contact sport where the truth is it's not a contact sport. Dancing is a contact sport. Football is a collision sport from what I've observed. <laughs> there was a, a guy who decided to take his girlfriend to the football game, and she'd never kind of attended a football game before, which I think is interesting, and, and um, she notices, um, she gets all kind of confused, and she just, uh, there's lots about this, you know, at, at, they went to dinner after the game that I don't understand. Well, what don't you understand? Well, I noticed before, at the beginning of the game, the teams flipped a quarter to see who'd kick off first. Then the rest of the game, everybody's saying, get the quarterback, get the quarterback, get the quarterback. <laughs> it's only a quarter. I don't, I don't think she got the point. Don't think she got the point. If a city is destroyed, if a city is destroyed in ancient days, what would be the criteria for or the reasons they would want to rebuild it. Let's talk about that for just a minute because we're going to talk about some predictions in this section of Scripture of a city that would be destroyed. Now, often if, if you've read much about ancient history, you recognize that a lot of times they would build a city on in an elevated section. On a, you know, we, we hear that term used a lot of times, a city on a hill. Well, that's more than a metaphor. A lot of times they would build a city in an elevated place because it was much easier to defend. So if there was a really good piece of geography that they yet maintained, they might rebuild the city on that place. Um, a city, if it was going to thrive and prosper, need to have access to lots of water and to food and, and to sources of those things. It would uh, Often cities would be placed, great cities in ancient days, would be placed along... Uh, trade routes that were strategic. And so uh, if something happened to a city, um, th they might rebuild it because of those things. Um, all those are kind of important factors. But interestingly, in history, another reason for rebuilding a city that was destroyed is if it happened to be um, some kind of a center for religion. Now, that's the case of the ancient city of Jerusalem. It would be destroyed in 586 B.C., kind of leveled, and it would be rebuilt, and it would be rebuilt again. Now, I want us to talk about, um, I want us to talk about a little bit about that city. Um, the first reference of that city is in about, um, it is like it, as early as Genesis 14, uh, where Abraham meets uh, Melchizedek. And uh, it pays him a tribute, and there's, then the, all this kind of controversy ensues on who in the world's Melchizedek. And um, but he's a priest, but it says he's a priest of Salem. So many many biblical scholars think that's a reference to the ancient city of Jerusalem. Now, uh, yes, Tom. Man, I have never heard that. That's really interesting. I'm trying to think if the chronology is right on that. He would be it. If they lived in the same era, it could be, I guess. Now, you're not talking about Shem and Curly and Larry. You're not talking about... You're talking about Shem and Ham and Japheth. Okay. That diff, different Shem. Okay. Yeah, wasn't that the one that did that? Okay. Flora? 
Well, if, if it was Shem, that's the son of Noah, right? Yeah, but I've never heard that. I've never heard that. Um, interesting. That, that'll be something for you to research. Yeah. Um, but Melchizedek was the priest over the city of Salem, it said. It's from Salem. Now, a lot of people believe that's an early reference to, uh, to Jerusalem from probably something like 2000 B.C. Um, there in Genesis 14. Um, you and I really don't encounter Jerusalem again until the days of David at about 1,000 or so B.C. So 1,000 years later, David finds this um, great walled, fortified city filled with Jebusites. And it's actually in those days known as Jebus, named after kind of their forefather. And uh, David decides this would be a great place to set up shop and uh, defeats uh, Jebus. And from that point on, the city of Jerusalem became, becomes uh, known as Jerusalem, the city of peace. That's what that word Salem or Salem means. And it also becomes kind of equivalent with uh, David himself, the city of David. Uh, it's often called David's town, David's city becomes uh, Jerusalem. Uh, now, it, interestingly to me, King Solomon, David's son, would later build a temple in Jerusalem as a permanent temple of the Lord to replace that portable tabernacle that they had uh, worshipped in in the wilderness for several hundred years and also during uh, lots of the years in Jerusalem. As a result, the temple became a new home for the Ark of the Covenant. Um, the capital city thus became also the temple city. That temple was dedicated about 960 B.C., but then it would be destroyed along with the rest of the city in 586 B.C. Now, Jeremiah is going to occupy kind of an interesting place in, in history, in the context of history, because he prophesies, or his, his ministry spans time before that destruction and after. And he's, he's hearkening to them to, um, he's trying to get them to listen to God's message to avoid this disaster. And of course, they don't listen, or they certainly don't respond. Now, what I would like us to do is begin to read. We're going to read just the first couple of verses here, and we're going to read then the verse 3 in a little bit, and then we'll go jump down to 18 and read down to 22. Let's talk a little bit about Jeremiah's message. Bob, would you read the first two verses of 30, and it's going to kind of get us into what's happening here. Okay, now, here's what I want us to do. I want somebody to kind of just zoom back. Anybody who mind reading Jeremiah? Somebody go to 7 1, 11 1, and 16 1. You're going to hear something similar here. Who will do that? 7 1, 11 1, 16 1. Somebody just real quickly flip to them. John, would you do that? Yep. Okay, John, now zip over to 11.1. I want you to listen to similarities between 31 and these. Okay, and now jump to 16.1, and you're going to hear it starts kind of alike. 
Okay, now, shouldn't we be a little careful of anyone that stands in front of a group of people and says, Behold the word of the Lord. I, let me answer my own question. Yes. You really should. Because in Jeremiah's day, and probably even more so in our day, we got a lot of, you and I hear a lot of people that, that say, this is the word of the Lord, that, you know, just ate a bad burrito the day before. I mean, it, you know, who knows what motivates this kind of stuff. The, sorry, I, you know, I'm not responsible for what I say. Um, now, think about this for just a minute. What's the difference if it really is the word of the Lord? What do you think? You can bank on it, absolute truth. If it's a prediction, which this is going to be predictive, then once the prediction has come true, then at least you can look back then and say, well, you know what? It must have been the word of the Lord. Okay? Now, Jeremiah doesn't have that advantage yet, but he's going to have it. Uh, he lives a little bit after the time of, of Isaiah, who would predict a lot of these same things from even earlier in spades that happened long after he was off the scene. So uh, the key issue of prophecy here is that the prophet is given by God a message to deliver. If the word was true, then it's going to happen. And you and I have the benefit of history to know that it actually did happen. Now, he was not only supposed to speak this oracle, okay, that's just a kind of a technical word for kind of a prophecy or a prediction. He was not only supposed to speak this oracle, but he was also uh, kind of told by God to write it in a book. Now, uh, when I think of a book, I think of this, okay, or the hardback version that's kind of on your, uh, on your table. Um, um, I am not yet so much into electronic media that I want to burn my library and put it all in my Kindle. I've got a few things there. But I actually like the feel of a book in my hands. Do you? Yeah. I, and there's nothing right or wrong about that. It's just kind of preference. I like to write in them and highlight them and do all that kind of stuff. So you'll often find me when I'm on a business trip or a pleasure trip like I was on last week, I'll have a book in, in a bag and you know, I'll carry it on an airplane and read an actual book. A lot of people don't do that much anymore. In Jeremiah's day, a book didn't look like either one of those things. A book would be a collection of pages of parchment sewn together that would then be rolled into a scroll. So what you need to think of, when, of the, all of these verses that we're going to read and all these chapters in Jeremiah would have been written down and rolled up in a scroll. Now, actually, we believe, um, and, and I'm going to give you a couple references here, we don't think Jeremiah actually wrote them himself in terms of he didn't write them down himself. He dictated somewhat. Look at, uh, somebody go to 36.4 and read verse 4 and then jump down to verse 10. Somebody do that, 36.4, and then read 36.10. Uh, Cindy, thank you. There are a few goofy names. Thanks for being, being uh, nice enough to do that. I think the main character here is a guy by the name of Barak. I think, yeah. Jeremiah, 
Okay, now, what's going on here in the first verse of Cindy Red? By the way, give Cindy a hand. She did a great job with all the names. Uh, uh, in the first passage, you've got Jeremiah doing what while Barak does what? He's dictating and Barak's writing it down. Okay? You know, um, Sally taught you and me penmanship, although she wasn't very proud of mine. She probably was yours. Um, her birthday was yesterday. She would have been 92 yesterday. Isn't that kind of amazing to think about? Um, but, but she was really big on penmanship and had a great hand. Uh, you know, lots of people don't do that much anymore. I'm, 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 I'm impressed with those who do. Sally, you probably got a great hand because you're a school teacher. But, but, you know, it just doesn't happen. Um, by the way, Mom somehow got away with putting Bible verses on the board for penmanship lessons can you imagine what would happen today if you do that? But, um, but is it such that, um, that Jeremiah didn't have a Sally Seton to teach him penmanship or, or a Sally Cable to teach him penmanship? Uh, could it be that he didn't write all that well or he just kind of wanted to dictate it to a guy? As the Lord was revealing to him, he's kind of dictating to Barak and he's writing it down. Now, but did you notice though the second passage that Cindy read, what does Barak later do? He reads it out loud to the people, in the presence of the people. Jeremiah, interestingly, uh, at least in this part of it, doesn't preach it himself. He doesn't read it himself. He's got a scribe that's doing that for him. I find that interesting. Um, and so he's got, he, he's going to do some speaking about this oracle, but he's also going to write it down, and, and Barak is going to write it, he's going to transcribe it for him, and then read it later. Okay, now, I want, Bob, can I come back to you and ask you to read just verse 3? Okay, now, we've got to catch this in historical context. This is prior to 586 B.C., and Jeremiah's talking about their captivity and the destruction of the city. And they're going to say, our captive what? <laughs> they don't see it coming. He does because the Lord told him. Okay. So the first word in your blank there is that he's, he's telling them the people are going to suffer, suffer what I would call another captivity. Um, the one they're thinking about is in their distant past, 800 years ago, when they were released from Egypt. That bondage and captivity hadn't happened since then, for the Judean people at least. Okay, And so he's, they've got that in mind. There's going to be another captivity coming, he says, uh, but it, um, not unlike the one from Egypt, um, except they're going to be removed from where they are, sent to Babylon, to, trucked off to Babylon, most of them, except for a few of them, and they'll be doing work there for the government. Can you imagine anything worse? Okay. I, get, I have to leave home, go hundreds of miles away, work, and I don't get paid for that. The government gets the benefit of it. That's what's coming, and he's predicting this kind of captivity. Now, second then, but he also predicts this. It's funny how he and Isaiah both talk about it like it's already happened. But um, they will also be restored, he says. Okay? And that restoration actually is goes to the extent of not only will they get to come back but they're actually going to possess that land again uh, Jeremiah goes to great lengths to deal with this fact in fact later on in the book 
God says, I want you to illustrate this for people. And so he goes and buys a piece of ground and says, uh, we're leaving, but we're coming back. Uh, I've got a deed. This will be mine again one day. Interesting. That's some pretty good faith, right? Pretty good hope. Okay, now, uh, so, so he gives them this idea that there's going to be another captivity, but there's also going to be a restoration. We'll be restored. Now, I want us to jump down. There's lots of predictive stuff and, and kind of some woes that are, that are pronounced in, chapter, in verse 4 down through 17. And I want us to kind of skip those, at least for now, and go to 18. And would somebody read, uh, Steve, would you mind to read 18 down through 22? Now, Jeremiah is going to predict some things that are, at the same time, kind of disturbing and wonderful, okay? Now, remember, they're sitting fine, they think, where they are in Jerusalem. And he's saying, you're getting ready to be carted off from here. And this is all going away, but we're coming back. Okay, now, um, he begins to talk about Jacob, and he makes a reference here to what I'm going to call Jacob's tents, because he uses that term, Jacob's tent. So we can need to kind of come to terms with what that's about. Um, it reminds me of a story of a guy who was really distraught and he goes to a counselor's office. Have I told you this story? He goes to a counselor's office and he walks in and he's just, he's just going kind of crazy. He says, I'm a wigwam. I'm a teepee. I'm a wigwam. I'm a teepee. And the, and the counselor says, sit down and settle down. You'll be okay. You're just too tense. <laughs> Is that the worst joke you've ever heard? pretty bad and sorry. <laughs> Jacob lived in tents. Okay? Jacob's life was like his father's life, Isaac, and like his grandfather's life, Abraham. They were nomadic people. What does that mean? They traveled. They didn't live in one place. They would pasture their flocks in one place, then pick up stakes on the tent and move on. And they would do this probably a half a dozen times in, a, in the period of a year. It was too hard. And by the way, when you think of tent, I don't want you to think of a pup tent or I don't want you to think of, a, you know, a Coleman tent. This would be kind of a fairly large thing with thick animal skins covering it probably, large poles that would hold it up. You could walk in this thing. They may have had rugs on the, uh, covering the bare ground. I mean, you know, it was a pretty swanky deal for a tent. Donna, don't I remember in Africa, you guys stayed in a pretty fancy tent in the bush somewhere, and you heard a lion come through the... I remember some story. Oh, but it wasn't fancy. It wasn't... Okay. Did it have furniture in it? Okay, not that one. 
Okay, you okay? So you, you kind of know kind of what I'm talking about. I just remember the lion coming through and it shook the ground. Um, well, this this tent uh, would be pretty elaborate, so they would move occasionally, not every day. They'd move occasionally. Uh, you can read about that in Genesis 25 because their life was as nomads. Here, though, when Jeremiah references it here in chapter in verse 18 in chapter 30, it means to take up residence. Referring to the future. So let me fill in your blanks. The re reference here is to Jacob's tents, but it refers to the people's future dwellings, to their future living place. Now, I want us to look again at verse 19, because I think it's really, really important. Let me read it. Verse 19. From them will proceed thanksgiving. Now, this is in a future day, as they're living, taking up residence again in Jerusalem, and the voice of those who celebrate. And I will multiply them, and they will not be diminished. I will also honor them, and they will not be in, insignificant. So the idea here is that his picture of the future is happy, prosperous, um, hopeful. Hope, it's very hopeful, and we need to use that word here, because it's very hopeful. Um, they are rejoicing. Uh, he, in his mind, he hears their shouts of rejoicing. He mentions that here. Now, anybody ever been to uh, Colonial Williamsburg? Uh, kind of a quaint thing to do in Virginia. And uh, I was reading about that this week. It's a recreation of the actual capital of Colonial Virginia. And it's a village that uh, time had kind of ravaged and destroyed, but which has undergone reconstruction and and uh, starting early in the 20th century, and uh, some original buildings have been restored, others have been recreated on the original foundations. Uh, it's, but it's been kind of established as a living museum. Well, John D. Rockefeller in 1932 um, kind of proposed a motto for Colonial Williamsburg uh, that was like this, that the future may learn from the past. Wouldn't it be good if we did? That the future would be informed by the past. Got a similar message here. Um, the roots of what is coming in this Babylonian captivity are found in the Judeans' neglect of their history before God. And, and we've kind of given, we're given a warning here as we look back on history to never forget the past. I live in the present. I live in the mercy and grace of God in the present. But I need to be informed by mistakes of the past. Mine and those who came before us. Now look at verse 20. Their children also will be as formerly and their congregation. In your Bible it may say community there. Shall be established before me and I will punish all their oppressors. So the idea here is that... Um, uh, uh, it includes, this restoration is going to be complete. It includes children. That's a blessing from God, he acknowledges here. And community, or uh, a I think he uses congregation, the one that I just read to you. It's the idea that they will be unified that when they come back together by common faith. Okay, jump back one book to Isaiah 54, would somebody read the first three verses of Isaiah 54? You're going to hear similar language here. Sing, O barren woman, you who now 
never bore a child, burst into song, shout for joy, you who were never in labor. Because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent, stretch your tent curtains wide, do not hold back, lengthen your cords, strengthen your stakes, for you will spread out to the right and to the left. For descendants will dispossess nations and settle in their desolate cities. So the idea is spread out your tent, expand it. Why? Got lots of kids coming. That's a great thing. It's, a, it's a being acknowledged here both by Jeremiah, and they're talking about the same period of time. They're talking about this time when they come back from, from Babylon, and the, God, the Lord will bless them in, in terms of prosperity, and in, in particular here, in the growing of a family. Larry, Tracy's grew her family pretty quickly. Held to those triplets. Ten. I, I can't believe they're ten years old, but I remember she went from having just none to having three in a day. Okay? And we believed, and we still believe, and I know you believe, that those are blessings from God. Okay? That's kind of what the, the acknowledgement is. All right? Um, but not only is this a blessing, but they will be, they will lead, live by and be led by a common faith. Now, I don't want to go too far with this, but I'm beginning to think about this concept. How different would our world be if everyone on the planet had a common faith? I really think that's what God desires for us. But I think sin gets in the way. And maybe if we had this perfect common faith, it would be a little different from what you and I even experience. You know? Might be. I don't pretend to have all the answers. Think of all the things that would not be, that are awful about our world, that would go away in a world that is a has a common faith. Well, that day will come, but it's probably not going to come before we see the see Jesus, will it? Probably not. We probably won't. And I'm going to talk about that place in just a minute. Now, okay, so the final aspect of this, let's look, somebody read verse 21. It's got one more aspect of this that I want us to catch. Okay, now, the final aspect of this restoration is going to include, okay, a, uh, a, um, a native leader, somebody from, uh, it's not going to be a leader that comes in from the outside. They're not going to import a leader from Babylon. They're going to have, um, in, some ways, in some ways, there's some leaders that come back, but it's not that, I, the idea here is there's going to be someone from among them who will lead them when they come back. Now, we know that the, the, the general reference to that or the, the most um, um, uh, kind of simple reference to that would be Zerubbabel, who does come back from exile in, um, 
in uh, Babylon, when this all takes place, he helps rebuild the city, rebuild the temple. Uh, we read about that in Ezra. I put some references there. Uh, you can read about him in Ezra and in Haggai and uh, kind of get his name. But he really doesn't, even though he serves the function of a king, he's really called a governor. He's not completely in control. And this talks like the leader is going to be in control. So I start looking, thinking, okay, you know what they're looking for? And I put a reference here to Acts 13. What they're looking for is a king like David. They will always look for a king like David. Uh, from 1,000 or so B.C. when Israel was mighty and worshipped the one true living God, they did have that common faith. But Zerubbabel is not David, even though he's in David's line. And I wonder here if Jeremiah might be thinking about something different. Maybe someone more than a Zerubbabel. Jeremiah continues kind of talking about this in verse, in verse 21. And he gives him several, several spiritual qualifications, whoever this leader is going to be. The coming ruler is going to be drawn close to the Lord. He's going to be devoted to him. He'll not just be a symbol of the nationalistic hopes of the Jewish people, but a person with a deep personal relationship with the God of Israel. Reminiscent maybe of David, but could it be that he's looking toward so much more? Zerubbabel is in the line of David, but he's never really seen as a spiritual leader much in the way that David was. Could this be looking forward to a much later day, 600 years or so later, when they will meet the Messiah, who, by the way, both descends from David and from Zerubbabel? Could be. Well, the, the verse we'll end with here is one of the great promises of the Bible. Now, I want to hand out some verses for us to read. We've got still enough time to do it, so we need to do this quickly, though. Exodus 6, 7, who will get that? Thank you, Sally. Uh, Leviticus 26, 12. Thank you, John. First uh, Peter 2, verse 9 and 10. Want to get that? Thank you, Karen. And uh, Ephesians 2, 15. Ruth, great. Now, we're just going to read it back to back to back. Here's one of the great promises of the Bible. I'll read it from uh, verse 22 here. Okay, here we go. You shall be my people when all this happens, and I will be your God. This won't be the first nor the last time they hear this. Let's, let's run some references on it. Uh, Exodus 6, 7. You'll be my people. I'll be your God. Leviticus 26, 12. I'll be your God. You'll be my people. Um, 1 Peter 2, verse 9, 10, 9 and 10. We're going to jump over all the way over to the end of the New Testament. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. He's talking to not only Israelites, but to those of us Gentiles who have been grafted in. You are not a people, but now you're the people of God. One more, Ephesians 2.15. <coughs>
what? I believe Jeremiah is seeing a bigger picture. I believe what he's looking forward to, and he's, he's initially talking to them about the restoration of the city in his lifetime. But I think he also sees this great promise from the Bible that there will be a restored humanity through the work of God's Son, Jesus Christ, that there will be a new community that will be uniquely belonging to God. Now, I'm going to close this by just asking, asking and answering a couple of questions. How was Jeremiah's message received by his audience? Crickets. He was just like, what? What is this foolish old man talking about? You can read a couple of references there. They just kind of rejected the whole thing. Um, um, they looked around. They didn't see Jerusalem in ruins. There was no temple to be rebuilt. And so they didn't heed his call to repent and trust. And it happened exactly as Jeremiah predicted it. Now, so Jeremiah, and you can read about it um, in, in verse 9. Again, we didn't read 9 earlier, so let me, let me go to it right now. Jeremiah talks about here a renewed, a restored city. Here's what he's going to say. They shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. There, Jeremiah looks forward to a restored city who will be ruled by a restored king. Now, in our future, there will be a city and there will be a king. But according to Revelation 21, there will be no temple. Now, I know some people have a little trouble with that one. But according to Revelation 21, in our ultimate future, there will be no temple because there will be no need for a temple. And John answers it saying, the Lord himself will be our temple. God's people ruled by God alone. That's what Jeremiah looks forward to. Okay, now, I believe the key to restoration after a time of exile is found in the one that you've decided to put your trust in. And I want to frame this this way as we get into this study. Give me two more minutes. What is your personal exile right now? You don't have to answer that out loud, but I bet you can name it. What's your personal exile? Do you have a hope for getting out of that? If you do, it will be found in who you're trusting. He wants to restore you. A week ago today, I was in a very pleasant place, and uh, we went to church with the family, went get a burger after, after church, and uh, then they do a thing in St. Joe that is called uh, Antiques on the Bluff. It is uh, this bluff overlooking Lake Michigan, and the, the vendors kind of put this stuff out for like a half mile down through there, and, and everybody kind of shops. My family absolutely loves it. Me, not so much. But I went, beautiful day. But the best part of that day was uh, about, uh, you know, an hour into that, I was totally bored and too pooped to, to walk up and down the sidewalk anymore. And Violet was about in the same place. She's three. And uh, so she and I sat on a 
swing. They had a swing, kind of a port swing affair, but it's on a, on a frame that looks out over Lake Michigan. So we're just kind of watching the boats and talking. And did she ever talk? For about 40 minutes, she didn't come up for air. <laughs> Some of it I didn't understand. And I said, you're right, baby, you're right, you know. But at one point in this conversation, she said to me, now the kids call me, the little kids call me Paul. Kind of my choice. They call me Paul. And, um, and Skip, we had a Paul. I thought it would be good that they had a Paul. Um, and so at one point, she looks at me, and we're having just this great conversation at a good time. We've talked about a hundred different things. And she says, you know, you be big Paul, and I'll be little Paul. I'm pretty cool with that. And yet the more I think about that, the more kind of concerned I've become to be. Because the truth is, I don't want Violet to follow me. I want her to follow the one that I follow. Now, I'm going to have a hand in that, I promise you. But I know that there will be times in her life before she's 30 where I'll probably disappoint her, and one of these days I'll be off the scene. And so what I really want her to do is to be linked to him. I don't want her to become a little paw. I want her to become a little Jesus. What restoration is needed in your life? Who are you following? Who are you trusting? Who's the voice in your life Who's the hope of your life for whatever piece of restoration you need? Can I tell you this? It will be found in who you're trusting and it will include becoming just like Him. We'll be in chapter 31 next week and we'll continue to talk about restoration hope. Okay? See ya. Have a great week.